Do your students create digital media in your courses or just consume it? Does the concept of information literacy seem too limited in this context? In this episode, we discuss meta-literacy as a framework for improving critical thinking and metacognition while students become active participants in the construction of knowledge in online communities. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Our guests today are Tom Mackey, professor in the Department of Arts and Media at Empire State College, and Trudy Jacobson, the head of the Information Literacy Department and Distinguished Librarian at the State University of New York at Albany. In fact, she is currently the only Distinguished Librarian in the SUNY system. Welcome, Tom and Trudy. Thank, Thank you. you. Very happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Today, our teas are... I am drinking Highland Blend. I'm drinking sweet cinnamon spice. And I am drinking chocolate mint tea, a Harney's and Sons blend. And I'm back to my good old English afternoon. Such a surprise. (laughs) Sometimes you just need to have the dependable option. Both of you have written very extensively and done a lot of research and workshops on meta-literacy with three books, three MOOCs with a fourth one under development, several articles, a badging system, and the metaliteracy.org blog. Could you tell our listeners a bit about what meta-literacy is? Sure. Thanks, John. I'll start. Meta-literacy is a pedagogical framework that empowers learners to be active producers of information in collaborative environments. So that's our elevator speech right there in terms of what it is. Basically, it is an approach to teaching and learning that prepares individuals to be reflective learners in addition to being critical thinkers. And we'll talk a bit about how that reflection piece is especially critical for a meta-literacy, which, of course, applies metacognition. By doing so, learners are informed consumers of information, which means they ask good questions about the information they encounter in a variety of environments. And as you know, that's important today with all the different environments and social media environments and access to different kinds of news sources that we have. It includes those especially mediated by technology. And we'll talk as the idea was first introduced and developed why that was so important to the concept. When we first introduced it, we really argued that because of the emergence of social media, online communities especially, think about Web 2.0 and the change from the original web, what a critical moment that was, that what we really needed was a meta-literacy that promoted effective participation in these environments. As we know, these collaborative social environments has an engagement piece that is important we built that into this meta-literacy framework. We thought there was a real need for that, how we were developing it. We also acknowledge that in addition to acquiring information and looking critically at information, that individuals really needed to creatively create and share information in this connected network world. This idea of consuming information versus producing information, is an idea that's been around for some time. But we really thought it was critical to develop it into a meta-literacy that also focused on reflection as a core concept. The idea of a meta-literacy is that we look at some of the common characteristics that unite different forms of literacy. That was the other piece of this. 
We introduced it as this comprehensive unifying framework. The idea for that was that in the social media environment, what we really needed was to try to better understand different competencies, different characteristics of literacies, instead of just coming up with a new literacy every time there's a new technology. We were trying to look at things in a more comprehensive way. As the idea developed in the first book, especially, the meta and meta-literacy intentionally invokes this idea of metacognition or thinking about your own thinking. This is really key to meta-literacy because meta-literate learners are reflective about their own learning experiences, and they really take charge of their literacy and learning, which is really where the empowerment piece comes in. Meta, derived from the Greek, also means after. Meta-literacy is what happens after literacy basic reading and writing, what comes after that. Also, what comes after information literacy, which is generally thought of as finding and locating information. The definition of information literacy has expanded since we started work on meta-literacy. In addition to reflecting on their own thinking, the metacognitive aspect of meta-literacy also means that individuals have the capacity to self-regulate their own learning, which means that they identify their own strengths and weaknesses and play a role in preparing themselves to adapt to new learning situations. Meta-literacy prepares learners to adapt to new technology and to do so in a critical way. That is, asking questions about how technologies are designed and the ways that technologies or platforms may impact how we access and create information, as well as how we communicate with information. Originally, we developed meta-literacy to emphasize how individuals participate in social media environments. And Tom, would you like to talk a little bit about that? That piece is really central to what we're doing. We see this framework as relevant to a range of collaborative teaching and learning situations. It is interesting that we saw a real need for emphasizing the social media aspect, online communities, this post-Web 2.0 environment that we were in, but we also don't want it to be limited to that. We really see meta-literacy in all environments, all collaborative environments, communities of practice. This is something we should be thinking about beyond just the technology, but really how we engage with each other, how we participate, and perhaps also how we blend the technology, how we mediate technology with those spaces as well. One of my favorite parts of meta-literacy is that it advances the idea that learners are teachers. We see this in collaborative environments where learners support and teach other learners. But what's really important is that often students, for example, don't think they have any particular expertise in something. And encouraging them to empower, to teach others, often leads to really interesting situations. That part is so key. And that's something that we saw in our own teaching experiences, that when we had students in collaborative situations, group work, building technology tools together, building collaborative websites, for example, that the students themselves were as much a teacher as I was. And trying to foreground that so that they can see it is critically important. This is a really interesting framework, and you've given us a lot to think about. Can you help us make it a little more concrete by providing an example of how you might emphasize meta-literacy in a class or what you mean by a student who might be meta-literate? One of the things that I would do in my classes is encourage students to be information creators and to explore the technology in doing so. So they don't have a final paper that they have to write, but they may need to create a video or a tutorial, or we'll be talking about our badging system later. 
maybe creating content for that and doing it in small groups. If they're doing something where they have to use a technology, I don't teach them that technology. They sort of learn together. And that learner as teacher often comes out in those situations because often there'll be a student in a group who will have more expertise in that area or be more willing to just jump in and see what happens. And then the rest of the group will learn from that. One of the more interesting teams that I had when I've taught is one where none of the students felt they could do anything, but they actually accomplished it. And their sense of pride and empowerment in doing that was wonderful. I have an example. I'm currently teaching a course at Empire State College called Digital Storytelling. And the whole point of the course is that students learn about these resources. They locate them with some prompts from me in the course, but it's a fully online course. And in many ways, they have to figure this out on their own. They have to adapt to these new technologies. And I think that they're looking at their own use of technology in a different way. So for example, the very first assignment, they have to create a selfie video with their cell phone. So they all have cell phones. They've probably all done videos before. They've probably all done selfies before. But this assignment is really designed for them to introduce themselves to everyone else in the class in a fully online course. From the very beginning, they have to challenge themselves to present themselves a certain way to the class, to be themselves, but to also think through that presentation, to really be the active producer of information in a collaborative setting where they're doing something on their own but they're sharing something about themselves to the other class. In an online course, it allows us to get beyond just the text-based introduction and online discussion and to really seeing the students, to hearing from them. I posted a video myself and it was great to see their response. So it was very much like a classroom situation, but it happened asynchronously and online. And it was a great way to get the class started. So from the very beginning, they saw themselves as digital storytellers and they know that they now are starting their story and that we're all going to participate and learn from them. So it's encouraging students not just to critically analyze information as consumers, but to be active participants in social dialogues as producers as well. Is that a reasonable short summary? Yes. Absolutely. And what does that mean, especially in today's environment, which is very participatory, but we're divided and partisan in so many different ways? How do we get across those divides? What does it mean to be a responsible participant of information now? What does it mean to be an ethical contributor to these spaces? The whole idea is to really to get them to reflect on this and not just to produce and share something, but now especially to think about the implications of that so that the informed consumer part is still important so that they're thinking about these different sources that they're encountering, but also thinking about what they're creating themselves and sharing. I think when they're asked to be information producers in this way, they think about themselves differently. They create information and share it on social media, but they don't really think of themselves as information producers. And so I think it expands their horizon. They may not have necessarily been asked to do so in an academic environment. This blurring of boundaries between informal learning and formal learning, I think it helps to push that a little bit. Not to say that they're not beyond our classes because they might be, but clearly they're doing it in their everyday practice with their cell phones and the way they consume information now. But this really foregrounds, I think, what some of the responsibilities are and what the empowerment of that is as well when they're asked to construct something. So instead of a research paper, maybe that is a collaborative media project with their peers. What kind of learning do you gain from that experience? Just one other point. 
the projects that I was talking about, they need to create them for public consumption. It's not something that's just directed as me as the professor of the course. They have to think about it a bit differently. That's a great point because in the digital storytelling class, they're not just creating it even for the Moodle environment that we're in. They have to actually upload their selfie videos to YouTube so that they're thinking a bit about that public consumption piece, even beyond the instructor and even beyond the class itself, because now it's out on YouTube. And hopefully that's having an impact on what they're thinking about in terms of how they present themselves and the information that they're producing. I'm hearing two key things bubble up in what you're talking about. And one is audience and the second is reflection. Are those two key things to move it beyond traditional information literacy to this meta literacy level? I think that those are two key pieces, but I think, well, there's the old definition of information literacy, and then there's the newer one, which is somewhat influenced by meta literacy. But I think that often information literacy is thought of primarily as consuming and evaluating information, so not the responsible creative production of it. It's also too often, I think, seen in the academic setting as just related to research and not sort of life-wide. I think that that's another element here. In many ways, that's what I think we were really originally working against, that original information literacy definition, the ALA definition, and also the Association of College and Research Libraries, the original standards, which were very prescriptive in the way that they were designed, so that we were, as a framework, we were really just trying to open this up and also take into account the technology piece, not make it all about technology, certainly, but in many ways, the advance of Web 2.0 and emerging technologies was kind of being, at the time anyway, sort of avoided. We knew that there's a real shift happening in our culture, and I think that we're sort of on the other side of that now, but I think that it was important important to bring that into the learning experience and to have students really reflect on those environments and what they're doing in those environments. You both mentioned the new ACRL information literacy framework. How does meta-literacy relate to that? We developed meta-literacy in part because of a frustration with this old definition as we were talking about. And Tom mentioned the standards really were very prescriptive, very skills-based, concentrated on the behavioral and cognitive learning domains. Metacognition was not a part of it. So you identified metacognition, so that reflection as something new. And they didn't explicitly address the affordances of Web 2.0. So I was co-chair of the task force that was convened by the Association of College and Research Libraries. And I brought the idea of meta-literacy to the group for consideration. There were a lot of forces at work in developing the structure of the framework, and there were like 2,000 people weighing in. So it's a very interesting process. Threshold concepts or core concepts was one of the primary features that we used with the framework. I sort of quote from the introduction to the framework, there are those ideas in any discipline that are passageways or portals to enlarged understanding or ways of thinking and practicing within that discipline. For example, in biology, evolution would be a threshold concept. So that was one element. And then the other was meta-literacy. The idea of learners as information creators, as well as consumers, which we've talked about, definitely has a presence in the framework. There are four learning domains in meta-literacy. So behavioral, cognitive, affective, and metacognitive. These all have made their way into the framework. So there really is, in part, a close relationship between the two. For example, the affective domain maps to the whole sections on learner dispositions. 
I think that there really is a close relationship. And I think meta literacy has gotten additional notice from people because it is explicitly mentioned in the framework. So it's complementary that they fit well together. They link well together. That's right. I think that's a good way to put it, that they're complementary, because that also allows each approach to still move forward because we see meta-literacy as this evolving concept and we've been working together. We're working with a team of colleagues called the Meta-Literacy Learning Collaborative on these ideas. We're writing together and we're developing these different MOOC and badging projects. Every time we do something new, we're learning something new and we're trying to build that into the core ideas here. I think that this idea of complementarity is really important for these two. They're not mutually exclusive. They work together. And as Trudy mentioned, when we go out and talk to different audiences on this, they're interested in both concepts and working with both. One interesting comment we often hear from people is that with meta-literacy, they'll say, you found a way to talk about something that we were trying to do or that we were already doing, but you found a name for it that really made sense. We really like that, the fact that we were able to name something that really probably was in practice, but maybe didn't have as in-depth of a framework built around it. And we like that dialogue with practitioners. That's something we try to do. So this idea of theory and practice for meta-literacy is critically important. It allows it to move forward. And the ACRL information literacy framework, information literacy is not something that can be taught only by librarians. So it's really directed also toward faculty and administrators. It still seems to have a librarian focus to it, whereas meta-literacy, I think, extends beyond that. Librarians are interested in it, but we're also seeing all sorts of things that are being written or talked about by academics in a really broad range of disciplines. And we've found that in the books. We'll talk about the two edited books we've done in addition to the first meta literacy book. And we saw evidence of that when we do a call for proposals. It's really from a wide area of academics. We definitely have librarians, but we also have faculty from many different disciplines also instructional designers. That piece of it has been really fascinating as well because we've been trying to really open it up to as many people as possible and not seeing it just within one particular discipline. How have faculty and librarians responded to your work? There's been a lot of interest in it. To explore one of the collaborations, somebody that I'm working with at the University at Albany is a political science professor. This will give you an indication how at least one person has responded to our work. She teaches a 200-level political science course that includes some of the general education competencies, one of which is information literacy. And she was developing this course from whole cloth. She came to me to talk about information literacy. We ended up talking about meta-literacy. And she was so excited by some of the things we've talked about that it would do for her students. So this idea of information creators, the empowerment that she has made meta-literacy sort of a key part of her course. She has the students do about eight activities connected to meta-literacy. These activities come from a digital badging system that we can talk about a little bit later. She actually has students create an activity that would fit into this digital badging system, which is pretty exciting. This year, she asked us to extend what we're doing, and we have been creating questions for the students about what it means to be an information creator, information producer, a teacher, a translator of information. And we found this very exciting. It's not just a collaboration in that she is using some of this material for her students, but her students are creating things for us, and she's giving us ideas. 
It's just one example, but it's one where it has become the core part of this course, not only when she teaches it, but when others teach it as well. Collaboration has been key to what we've been doing from the very beginning. The first SUNY IITG we received was really to initiate, to launch a meta-literacy learning collaborative. And that first project led to the development of our first connectivist MOOC, beginnings of the digital badging system, although it wasn't part of the, the initial grant, but that's something that we started working on. And also, what was most important at the time was the development of the first meta-literacy goals and learning objectives, which we've recently revised. But it was important when we developed that, that instead of just Trudy and I working on this together, we really opened it to a SUNY-wide audience that included faculty and librarians. Those goals and learning objectives are available via metaliteracy.org, and we've recently revised them as well. I think that that collaboration with the Meta Literacy Learning Collaborative also led to thinking about meta literacy in a different way and thinking about those four domains of learning that Trudy mentioned previously. We would look at the metacognitive, which we've mentioned is key, but also the behavioral, the cognitive, and the affective domain. So that what we're really looking at is really the whole person. We've also, through the Meta Literacy Learning Collaborative, we've been working on papers together. We've been working on these MOOCs. We were lucky enough to have the experience of working on a connectivist MOOC really early on, and then a Coursera MOOC, and then a Canvas MOOC, and now we're working on Open edX. And all of those projects involve faculty librarians from Empire State College, the University of Albany, and other parts of SUNY. That's really key. We're very lucky that we've been invited to speak on this, which also shows the level of interest and how people are responding to it in many different venues. And last year, we were lucky enough to present at a conference at the University of Guadalajara in Mexico for this literacy and learning conference. And it was just a great experience to be there with international scholars who were talking about literacy in various ways. And then we added something by talking about meta-literacy. And there was a lot of interest in what we were talking about. We appreciate those opportunities to have conversations that are both theoretical and practical. The response has just been really positive. We should just clarify the IATG program you mentioned is a SUNY-wide competitive grant program for all of the colleges and universities within SUNY. You were one of the early recipients of that and have received some further funding from that, just to explain that to our listeners who are not as familiar with the SUNY system. John, since you mentioned the Innovative Instruction Technology Grant, just to show sort of interest from others, we did get one with a School of Education faculty member, actually one from Albany and one from Empire State College, because they were really interested in the digital badging, but also the idea of a digital citizen. The plan was and happened that graduate students in education who were going to be teachers would have an opportunity to learn about digital citizenship that's important for them when they're teaching, also what digital badging is. So there were a couple of different takeaways. We were able to move meta-literacy or an aspect of meta-literacy into graduate education for educators. Been a lot of mention of these meta literacy badges, so maybe we can talk about those now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, certainly. This developed out of one of those innovative instruction technology grants. We've been working on them ever since. What we did was we took the learning goals and objectives for meta literacy and created open content, very ambitious scheme. There's four digital badges in the system each one of which has anywhere from 
12 to 20 activities, starting with lower level quests, moving up to challenges, and ultimately you get to these four digital badges. They were written by members of the Meta Literacy Learning Collaborative. Tom has written some. I've written some. Students have written some, so undergraduate and graduate students. They're being used currently at Albany. About 2,500 students have gone through parts of this badging system. The only ones so far who've actually earned badges are ones who have taken my courses. It's content that can be used in classes across a range of disciplines, also adaptable to the disciplines. I mentioned earlier the political science professor. And sometimes she sort of tweaks the assignments in there so it really relates to what she's teaching in her political science course. The badge system itself at this point is restricted to University at Albany because there's a single sign-on process. But we do have a website that has all of the content openly available. People are welcome to use this. And from the perspective of someone who has developed some content for this. It's really a fascinating experience because you know that you're somehow reaching learners that are not in your course, but that it's something that you're opening and you're sharing. So this idea of thinking about them as open educational resources that can be then adapted for different contexts. It's really interesting and exciting to know that something I might create as a learning object could be used by a faculty member here at the University of Albany who's having their student move through it. Some of them that I developed are based on learning activities I had created in some of my information science courses when I taught here at the university, but I've adapted them or updated them. That piece of it, from a faculty perspective, as long as you're open to it, is really engaging and interesting and a way to reach other learners who may not be students in your class, but you're sharing those ideas with them. And I don't know if it's okay if I plug a book that I just co-edited with Kelsey O'Brien just published this month, September 2018, Teaching with Digital Badges, which was published by Roman and Littlefield. Great. You're both working on a new book together, right? Yes. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that new book and how it connects to your earlier work? Sure. The new book is called Metaliterate Learning for the Post-Truth World. We've shifted somewhat from, I think, what was a really optimistic view of the connected world and how great it is to be producers of information and be participatory to really trying to further emphasize some pieces that were there, but I think needed to be fleshed out a bit more for the new environment we're in post-truth, which is based on confirmation bias and misinformation, false information and questions about news sources and all kinds of misleading facts that are being sent out. We really wanted to take that head on because we saw meta-literacy in many ways, even though it's an idea that had developed previously, as something that is a strong educational response to some of the concerns and issues that we're seeing today. Soon after the 2016 election, we wrote a piece about fake news, and that term has certainly changed even from the time that we originally wrote it. We wrote a piece for the conversation called How to Reject Fake News in a Digital World. So again, taking a meta-literacy approach to looking at fake news in a critical way. Since that time, even the term fake news, of course, has been weaponized. So we have conflicting thoughts about even using that term. Based on the research, some educators think that it's important to still keep using it and others want to reject it completely. But I think we all generally know the narrative of that. The new book we decided to foreground meta-literacy in this environment and to make it an edited book so that we could engage other educators 
about this idea. It wasn't just us, but that it was other educators who were dealing with it. About half of the book is very theoretical, and the other half of the book is more practical. When we did a call for proposals, we tried to intentionally keep that open because we wanted different perspectives on this. I wrote the framing chapter to really talk about post-truth, to reframe meta-literacy within this context, and to also talk about a new figure that Trudy and I developed together based on the meta-literacy learning characteristics. The new book is going to present a new image, a new figure that further develops the meta-literacy idea from a theoretical perspective and talk about the importance of those characteristics in the post-truth world. We're joined by incredibly prestigious authors who, from a theoretical standpoint, look at things such as the importance of documentation in meta-literacy. And again, what they're doing is they're fleshing out pieces of meta-literacy that we have not engaged with yet. So it was really exciting to see that. Another author talks about inoculation theory, preparing learners to, in many ways, be resistant to some of the post-truth issues that we're currently engaged in. Scientific literacy, so there's a whole chapter on the importance of scientific literacy and looking at it through the lens of meta-literacy. Also looking at the synergy of word and image and photojournalism. Tom Palmer, who teaches here in the journalism program at the University of Albany, and who's also a journalist who works for the Times Union, wrote that chapter. A few of the chapters do deal with the ACRL framework for information literacy for higher education. So we have that perspective. We were talking previously about how both concepts are complementary, and we have a few authors who really prove that. We also have a few authors who look at such topics as teaching students to be wrong, genre writing in the first year writing instruction, and the application of poetic ethnography in digital storytelling to create narratives in Philadelphia neighborhoods. I'm very interested in digital storytelling. I mentioned that previously, and one of our authors also talks about digital storytelling to empower voices and to encourage students to really raise their voice in the current times that we're in. And earlier, you sort of asked how faculty, other educators, librarians have responded to meta-literacy. I think it's really interesting. Tom and I did a workshop on meta-literacy at Temple University, and a couple of these chapters actually came from people who were in that workshop. It was really sort of exciting to see the immediate impact that that had had. That's cool. So this sounds like a really great book. When can I get it? Next spring. (laughs) Okay. Your current MOOC is a Coursera MOOC, but you're developing a new Open edX MOOC. Could you tell us a little bit about that and how that new MOOC will differ from the prior MOOCs? Because you've had more than one in the past. This is part of a continuum of those three MOOCs. We actually wrote a paper in Open Praxis that talked about meta-literacy as a pedagogical framework that was applied in these different MOOCs. So we did a kind of compare and contrast of the different MOOC environments, but also talked about our experiences and those different platforms and what it was like. And at the end of that paper, one of our conclusions was that what we really needed to do next was create a kind of hybrid MOOC environment, because what we had previously was the connectivist MOOC, which was our first one, and that Stephen Downs type approach. We actually used his Grasshopper programming to run that MOOC. Then we had the more structured X MOOCs, the Corsair and the Canvas. In many ways, the paper was about that. But what we decided at the end of the paper was we analyzed it was that we needed a hybrid version. And would it be possible to do that? Is there a platform out there that has the learner-centered, free-form approach of the connectivist MOOC with some of the structures that were valuable and the video that was really key to the X MOOCs? 
that's one of the ideas that propelled this idea forward. We also then, of course, had this shift to this thinking of a transition from kind of a connected world to a post-truth world. And what does that mean? And because we were working on this book, Metaliterate Learn in the Post-Truth World, we thought that's a theme for a MOOC. We won't go out there and call it the Metaliteracy MOOC, but it's a post-truth MOOC that's powered by Metaliteracy that really applies the Metaliteracy framework to each of the modules within the MOOC. So we're really excited about that. We did apply for another SUNY IITG, and we did receive funding for that, which allows us now to build a team. Again, it's another Empire State College, University of Albany team. And we're really excited about it. We're developing it now. We're exploring the open edX environment. And as part of that, too, we're working with the University of Buffalo because they've just launched an instance of open edX for their continuing education program. And so they've already done a lot of the analysis and a lot of the footwork in terms of creating this instance of open edX on their campus. So they're letting us experiment with what they've done. And the idea is that our experience as one of the first two SUNY institutions beyond UB that are using Open edX, that we will hopefully pave a way for other SUNY faculty librarians that want to develop an Open edX MOOC. One of the things that we'd like to do with this that Tom mentioned earlier, we've recently revised the meta-literacy learning goals and objectives. We are using those as the framework for this new MOOC. We would like to address issues such as confirmation bias, the role of expertise and authority in today's environment, issues related to safety, security, and personal privacy online, representations of reality in a virtual world, and all the while sort of empowering participants to raise and share their voices while rebuilding communities of trust. Who do you see as the audience for this particular MOOC? I think that we're really hoping that it's a very broad audience. We've had that, for example, with the Coursera MOOC, where there were a lot of international participants everywhere from high school students to non-traditional types of students. We learned about their professions, which just ran the gamut. And I think that although we do hope to introduce this MOOC as part of courses, both at Empire State College and at the University at Albany, we're really hoping that participants are traditional learners and non-traditional learners. I think that what we're going to be including in the way of content is something that needs to be broadly disseminated. And I think because that's one of the advantages of MOOCs is that they do open up a potentially global audience. So we're hoping for that international perspective as well. And as Trudy mentioned, we are developing courses so that we could, on each of our campuses, I'm calling them wraparound courses, so that they're courses that introduce students to the MOOC and they can then earn credit for doing so. Because that's been one of the big questions about MOOCs, can you earn credit? So what we're doing is creating separate courses. And in my version of the course, I'm doing a full semester course so that the first half of the course will be introducing students to, well, what is a MOOC? What is post-truth? What is meta-literacy? And I have a whole section on how to prepare for success in taking a MOOC. And then that will hopefully prepare them to be a successful learner in a MOOC environment so that then they'll take the six-week course, and then there will be a reflection piece at the end, which is very meta-literacy. 
And I actually think that a course about a course is very meta. So we've got that piece of it. And that idea too emerged from our very first connectivist experience where we tried to do it for credit. And sure, you can talk about this experience at the University of Albany in particular. In many ways, the students were not prepared for the connectivist environment. So what we're trying to do is in mind, since mine will be a full semester course, is invite students to take it, but to really prepare them for being successful in a MOOC. Because we know too that completion rates in MOOCs are not always great. But what if you offer it and prepare students for that environment? I think it's unique enough of an environment where that's worth exploring. Yeah, and Tom referred to our connectivist MOOC, which I did use as part of a course, essentially a blended course. And I was amazed when the students actually asked for more in-person class meetings because they couldn't really grasp the idea of the MOOC and the fact that they were making decisions about their own learning. They were making decisions about which readings would be important. They needed to participate through a personal blog that was sort of collected and shared. And what they essentially did was doubt. I had about a 60% dropout rate in the course. And the ones who were left were the ones who just wanted their hands held, essentially, through the rest of the course. And that's where we really learned that what Tom is going to be doing with his course, which is a full semester course, mine will be a quarter course again, is preparing them for this. This MOOC will be a more directed connectivist MOOC, but it was a very important takeaway. And I'm hoping that by doing that, it prepares them not only for our MOOC, but it opens up the possibility of taking other MOOCs for lifelong learning. So I think there are potential benefits for even beyond this experience. We're hoping to launch. The MOOC, we're developing it now, but we're hoping to launch it for March 2019. It will be called Empowering Yourself in a Post-Truth World, which is really important because we really want it to be a positive learning experience and one that provides resources for learners to be successful. You can imagine that talking about the post-truth world could be a real downer, but what we really want it to be is a real positive focus of how to address the issues, look at these issues critically but then to leave with some concrete ways of dealing with it. It also builds on some of the other MOOCs we had. The Coursera MOOC, for example, was called Empowering Yourself in a Connected World. And we're running that now as an on-demand version. So when we first ran it in Coursera, we were in the course and it was moving along and we were there in the discussions and following it. But then Coursera changed its format a little bit and opened up this possibility of on-demand. And we actually like that because it allows us to have that content out there and to have learners engage with it in a self-paced way. Up to this point, we've had, based on the stats we continue to receive from Coursera, it's running all the time, we've had 1,900 registrants and 900 active learners. We were really happy about that because it really gets some of these concepts out there. And I think it's probably, it's been out there for a couple of years now, it's probably due for a revision that's one of our projects that we'd like to do eventually. But I think that the post-truth MOOC will, in many ways, build on that as well. So if someone wanted to go back, they could look at that on-demand version. But as Trudy mentioned, the the post-truth MOOC is a six-module, six-week learning experience on a very specific topic. I think it will be even more of a clearly defined focus than even the other one. Would be really nice to have all voters taking in the next couple (laughs) of years. (laughs) We would like that. Yes. Yes. 
So you've talked a lot about the learner side and some of the tools and materials and MOOCs and things that can help learners become more meta-literate. How do you help faculty coach students through this kind of process? What are the takeaways for faculty? They've listened to this episode. They're really interested in the idea. Where do they get started? I think not to just promote our books, but I think that perhaps if they took a look at the two edited volumes, they might get a sense of how others are doing it. And the range of disciplines is pretty broad. So they might find someone in their own or a related one. I think that that might be a good place to start. I think also taking a look at the learning goals and objectives might provide some ideas of things they're already doing, but perhaps finding ways to highlight them or frame them slightly differently. And not to promote our blog, but (laughs) metaliteracy.org, everything is in there, including the goals and learning objectives, summaries of all the books, because we've had the blog now for a few years. So it's interesting even to kind of go back and look at some of the original postings but it links to the books. It links to all the presentations. The presentations are available. And a few of the keynotes that were recorded are in there. I do think the meta-literacy goals and learning objectives are definitely key because those can be easily applied. Should we mention what we were just invited to write about? Because that would actually address this audience as well. Yeah, we're going to be writing a piece for higher education jobs. They have a couple of newsletters and it's going to be talking about the importance of teaching or emphasizing meta literacy on campus for administrators and also what instructors can do. We think that those are going to be appearing in November. Because we've had a commitment to making everything open, I know it's a lot to look for, but we do have the Meta Literacy YouTube channel, the blog, of course, the presentations, and a lot of these resources were intentionally constructed that way so that other educators could use them. So go to Empowering Yourself in a Connected World on Coursera and access the videos, use the learning activities in any way you want. Go to the first module. There's a PDF in there that has the Meta Literacy learner roles, and we've used them as learning activities in our own classes and it has some reflective questions. So you have this diagram that really explains the different roles a learner could take. And then it has questions for learners to really think about those roles. So I think a lot of those resources can be adapted in any way that people want. And it's really an open concept. So we want people to get involved and apply their own approaches to this. We wrap up by always asking, what next? You've given us so much, but what else? (laughs) (laughs) That's a really good question. The next book that we mentioned is coming out in the spring. We're currently working on the Open edX MOOC, Empowering Yourself in a Post-Truth World. We also, of course, will be launching that in the spring. With the digital badging system, we would like to, if we can find some more funding, have a learning pathway portion to it where instructors can really tailor the information or add components for their own disciplines. We're also working on a meta literacy module for another innovative instruction technology grant fund project called I Succeed, which is being developed in Western New York. And they've asked us to provide a module on meta literacy. This is going to be directed to high school students who aspire to college or first year college students and can be used by instructors. So we are putting that together with four units. We have a few upcoming panel presentations at OLC Accelerate in Florida in November. I may see you there. Oh, great. 
I haven't been there in a couple of years, so I'm looking forward to getting back. Uh, that's such a great conference. It is. And of course, there will be continued research and writing. I'm certain that the Open edX experience that we're currently immersed in will lead to a paper. And we'd like to do a research project that assesses the application of the meta-literacy goals and learning objectives. So much of what we've been doing is really theorizing and talking about practice and developing these environments but we would like to delve into that a bit more. We might have an opportunity to work with an international scholar that we met last year at the University of Guadalajara, but we're not sure about that if that's going to happen. But that would allow us to really expand the meta-literacy concept working with an international scholar. So there's a lot of possibilities. Perhaps a COIL course is in our future, and that's another SUNY resource. It's a collaborative online international learning environment. I think that's something that we would love to do with an international scholar. So we'll see if that happens someday. So a lot of ideas, got a lot going on, but we'll see. You've got a nice track record of being really productive with us. Thanks so much for joining us and spending time and giving us lots of things to think about. Yeah, you're doing some wonderful work. Thank you. Thank you so much. We really enjoyed this. Yeah. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teafortteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.